Hello, I'm Arianna Raji Lee, founder of Pasha Mama, and welcome to our conversation, In Conversation, the podcast where I speak to women's health practitioners, baby and toddler experts, mamas and mums-to-be, to find out about what they do and how their story can support you through modern motherhood. Let's get started, shall we? Hello, hello. You've made it through the first month of 2021. I hope it uh, was bearable for you. I hope that uh, any New Year's resolutions that you may have um, charged yourself with are still standing strong. Thank you for joining us um, on today's episode um, where I'm speaking to educational child and community psychologist, Teresa Wheeler. Um, When I did a little survey of the Pashamama community um, a few months ago, One of the big concerns uh, that came out was the social development of babies that have been born either just before we went into lockdown or during lockdown. And I really wanted to address this topic given that there were so many of you who were concerned. Um, And so I've spoken to Teresa and let me tell you the good news is that the skills that babies learn whilst interacting with other children are very much skills that they can learn with you at home. So in terms of the development, you have nothing to worry about. Um, And that's what we talk about. Um, We talk about how and when babies develop their social interactions. And Teresa also um, suggests some games that can sort of aid development. We also touch on attachment theory and transitioning into into the workplace. And Teresa shares her own personal experience of what it was like for her when she had to drop her daughter off at play school. We also touch on the importance of emotion coaching and how we can go about describing and dealing with our emotions, not just for our children, but also for ourselves, which is a massive area of interest for me as I, at now 34, I'm still working out the best way to describe how I feel. It was actually from this from this episode with Teresa that we spoke about how the different array of emotions is similar to the different hues of color so there's not just blue I mean there's so many different shades of blue and 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 likewise there are so many shades of one emotion um and I actually ordered off Etsy an emotion word wheel poster that I'm going to frame and put up in my study so that study lol the room that I'm working from home in and I'm going to put it up and I'm going to look at it and I'm going to try to really coach myself through my emotions each day but I seem to have gone down a tangent and I'm going to bring it back to this episode, which is all around social development in babies and the impact that of a locked down life for them. So mamas, sit back, relax and enjoy this episode. Hi, Teresa, how are you? Hi, I'm fine, thank you. Good. Hey, thank you so much for... Um, for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, I'm really um, excited to be looking into the topic of, I guess, um, child psychology, given that a lot of our community, a lot of our members, a lot of our listeners are first-time parents in a pandemic. So their children have not necessarily had the social interactions that they were kind of hoping for or expecting had we not been um, in the lockdown. But before we get into the kind of nuts and bolts of the discussion, why don't you um, introduce yourself and your background? 
Yes, of course. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to have this conversation as well. I'm Teresa Wheeler. I'm an educational child and community psychologist. Um, and I've been oh gosh, qualified for six years. And prior to this, I worked as a primary school teacher in a school for children that have got special needs. Um, I've got a two-year-old myself. Um, so it is really interesting to be thinking about how the pandemic's impacting on young children, the positives and the negatives, and um, from a parent point of view as well as, as a psychological point of view. That's great. And I, I'm, we're going to get into those positives and negatives um, further in the into the conversation. What I'd love to start with, I guess, is understanding um, what actually socially social development in babies is and when mm -hmm. does that typically start to develop? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a massive um, overarching term, social development, isn't it? So social skills, in a nutshell, are the competencies that we all develop, hopefully by the time we're adults, that we use to facilitate our interactions and our communications with others, uh, which sounds really in-depth and it is quite complicated. It takes a long time to build it up. Um, for very, I suppose for very young babies, they do enter the world, they don't understand what culture they're in, they don't understand social niceties, they don't understand the intricacies of how to engage with others. Um, but studies have shown that they really do seek that interaction. Um, there's quite a few videos of this and you can find them on YouTube um, of babies who are maybe an hour or two old sticking their tongue out in response to a parent sticking their tongue out. Um, it's a very basic form of communication, but it just really shows that they are, they are social beings. They're trying to do whatever the adult is doing and they really do want to communicate. From I think kind of the first three months in the fourth trimester, babies' communication and social interactions is very, very functional. They, they don't understand what's going on in their body. They don't understand pain. They just know something's not right. They cry. And that cry is help me sort out whatever's going on, feed me, change me, dry me, or just I'm not happy. Um, I think most parents probably say, I don't know, by the, by the time the child gets to one or two, they know what's going on. But when it's a newborn baby, I know for me particularly, we, we had a checklist. We'd go through, are you hungry? Do you need changing? Are you hungry again? Do you need to sleep? Do you need burping? And sometimes it wouldn't be any of that. Um, but for a baby, that's the only way they can interact. And that's the only way they can kind of socially connect with us. Um, their main point of call at that point is usually the mother, but it can be the primary caregiver. So that could be a father, it could be a grandmother, it could even be a foster carer at that point. Um, it's, it's really hard not to go into a huge amount of detail because between zero and one and then one and two, social skills just explode. Um, by the time they're six weeks to two months, they start to smile. So they start to seek eye contact, which um, I think a lot of parents will say that's really a lovely point because they know that what they're doing is funny or appreciated and you're not just getting a really confused look back. Um, at the same time, so much of their other skills are developing, like their vision, which then helps them see people, notice others in the room. They learn to switch their attention. Um, at this point, their skills and their social skills are still mainly with their parents or if they've got siblings in the home as well, they may be involved. But they will usually seek out their preferred adults um, 
if you're in obviously not in a pandemic but in a busy room normally and a child's in the arms of someone unfamiliar they'll look and they'll find their mother or their father or someone that they really trust so that's they will be looking for that they can recognize and differentiate between people um, and then as they move kind of six months onwards into toddlerhood they start to understand words they start to respond to them they start to recognize sounds and start to make gestures um, to get what they want uh, and still at that point it's usually the parents and people that are close to the child that understand what they mean um, and other people will say what did they say how on earth do you know that um, but they're definitely developing at a huge rate they start to understand what no means they start to understand different tones of voices they start to experiment with different ways of interacting um, probably more noticeable from kind of 18 months onwards, the toddlers, they really start to learn more about the social rules. They start to learn what's acceptable, what's unacceptable. And sometimes they do this through doing the unacceptable behaviour quite a few times just to see if they get the same reaction. Um, I think, um, for example, throwing, throwing food on the floor, which is sometimes really difficult not to laugh at as a parent because it is quite cute when you've got a mucky toddler throwing things up in the air but they do generally learn. That's not what we do with food. We don't do that with plates. Um, they start to then develop their language, which is a really huge part of social interaction because it's the primary way that we communicate with others. Uh, these, all of these skills that they're developing help them to then do more complicated interactions and social interactions such as games, um, kind of role-playing, hide and seek, uh, any games that have rules, um, sometimes the rules may be made up by the child or not really understood by anyone else, but they really start to experiment with that. Um, in terms of social interactions with other children, uh, this is something that I looked up a lot because my daughter is two and a half now. She didn't really seem too fussed about the other children when we went to baby groups. Um, she would look at them. Uh, sometimes they might look at the same toy, sometimes they'd stare at each other or they might smile at each other. But her primary focus was me as an adult or any one of the other parents who would talk to her. So I think, and, and the other children were fairly similar. So I was really fascinated by this because I, having never had a child before, just assumed if they were around children, they'd naturally start copying them. Um, and she didn't really. She started her nursery when she was 18 months and was really happy around the other children, but they all played alongside each other. They didn't tend to play with each other at that point. Um, and it was only really from two that she started to notice and see other children as exciting as she saw adults. And I think that's probably because adults respond in quite a similar way in a consistent way and can communicate. They slow their tone of voice down. They use words that the child understands. Whereas if you put, five two-year-olds in a room they're all just going to be making noise and <laughs> running around and saying their favorite words and it's really complicated and social skills in kind of toddlers upwards continue to change they continue to develop they learn about being polite using manners which will vary depending on the culture they're brought up in and the context they live in they also will go through kind of primary school into secondary school into adulthood and the social situations that they engage with will change so much um, I think in particular teenage, uh, just from my experience, teenage girls in a teenage girl secondary school, 
it's so complicated and there's so many rules that you have to just understand there's not a rule book that you can give and say this is how you interact socially um, but all of the things that they're doing were kind of between the ages of zero up to three up to five with their parents learning how to listen how to give eye contact how to respond how to be polite that really helps throughout life gosh okay that was amazing that was that long. Was, it was long but as you said um this is a massive massive topic and we're sort of probably only going to be skimming the surface of it but that you, you've you've said a few things that I just kind of wanted to unpick I mean I love that you said that throwing food on the floor was quite cute I know some parents who <laughs> find it less so um I guess one of the questions that um, or concerns I get from mums a lot is um, that is it an, an issue or may it become an issue or a, a challenge later on if the interactions that their little one is having at home is only with the caregivers in at the home given mm. the current situation you know a lot of our a lot of the, uh, um, a lot of our uh, parents haven't been able to see their parents so the grand grand grandparents haven't been able to hold or interact with their new grandchild for example is there need to worry that um, the interactions are only with a small cluster of people given this given the current situation in terms of that's uh, just a really interesting point because I imagine there are some researchers currently studying this and then in two or three years they will publish the impact of the pandemic on social skills, well, on everything really. Mm. I um, think that um, parents naturally worry, whatever the situation they're in, they will naturally worry. But obviously this is a whole new situation. We don't know when it's going to end, when children can go back and just I don't know, be normal toddlers again, when parents can take them out. Um, I would generally, if, if I work with parents at the moment who've got young children, say not to worry because the skills that they're learning through playing with other children will be things like taking turns, um, learning to wait, learning that you can't always have something that doesn't belong to you or sometimes you have to share. And these are all things that children can do at home with their parents um, and their siblings if they've got them. Um, there may It may be that they do a massive study and come out and say, well, actually that did have a negative impact um, but I'm just thinking of children who live rurally, who don't have access to nursery or childminders, and who, gen who spend most of their time around adults. I haven't, to my knowledge, seen anything that indicates that their social skills would be impacted um, by the lack of contact with other children. Um, I think nowadays it's much more common for children to go into nurseries or go to childminders, go to baby groups. But I know from... Kind of, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, it was much less common. And some children would go into reception at school having not been in a baby group, not been to preschool, not been to play school, just because of how things were at the, or the lack of availability. They're much more available now. More parents need to work, so they're much more common. And generally, everyone catches up with the social skills. I, I would really say it's normal for parents to worry because it's a really unknown situation and I imagine if you go on Google you can find articles suggesting that it's really bad or it's going to be terrible but you can also probably find articles that promote the positives. Um, my advice to parents that I speak to at the moment has just been to 
play with your children, engage with them. Um, and as you would normally, um, it's just that that's happening a lot more because they're not going out to a setting as it were. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Um, well, first of all, never Google anything if you think that's the problem. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's really interesting that you said that um, what you said about, um, uh, you know, when you saw your, your own child to, at two years old, not really interacting with the other kids, yeah. actually. So, so, um, so yeah, I, you mentioned about, you know, advice for parents now is to just play with your children. Are there any specific activities that you would, I guess, recommend in terms of aiding that social development in a, in a really kind of fun, fun way? Mm. I, I think that's a really hard question to answer because I know from my own child that she didn't always like the things that we set up for her. Um, and she tends to go through phases. Sometimes she will love the physical toys. Um, I think when we had nursery closures and we were in lockdown, we just played outside most of the time in the water, which really wasn't, we weren't really doing any learning. We weren't doing anything technical. It was just playing. I think knowing the child's interests, that's, and that's what parents do best. They know what their child likes. They know their interests. And just joining in with that, using language, developing their words. So if they're playing in the water, just saying splashing, water, wet, whatever describes it, um, and extending those games. I think offering them role play is always really good if they're interested. Um, if they're slightly older, turn-taking games, so like throwing, catching for a really simple one or a board game, maybe if they can access that. Reading books is always a lovely shared activity. Um, and that can be done as a shared task rather than reading to them. So you can sit next to them, I don't know, take a turn and say, what happens next? Or what's in that picture? So they're really included in it and they learn about taking turns in the conversation. Um, I think probably one of the best things that parents do with their children is talk to them um, and just ask them questions like, what are you doing? I don't know, what colours the ball? Just, just as generally parents do. Um, for new parents, I think particularly they worry that there's a right way to do things. And there absolutely is not a right way to do things. If it's not natural for somebody to be singing and dancing, that's absolutely fine. We don't all have to do that. Some people love that. Others will be much more quiet and they'll read stories or they'll talk quietly to their child. Um, and children are all different as well. So I think knowing what they like, choosing the variety of toys that they can use, um, they can access extending it but making sure you're taking turns and not just sitting quite passively with them um i just think it's really hard to recommend particular toys but open-ended toys i've found really useful in the last year um so i think i'm trying to think of the brand. the grims um do a lovely rainbow it's just a wooden rainbow which stacks up and it was recommended to me by a friend and I thought it, it does look beautiful. It's quite expensive. So I got it and thought, this is interesting. What's going to happen with it? But it's, it's been really good because it's not a toy with a specific purpose. So it can be a rainbow, but you can also stack it in different ways or you can make, well, kind of animal creatures out of it. It's been a campfire recently, all laid out in a circle. And I think perhaps if we hadn't got a few of those toys, we really wouldn't have, develop that imagination and that imaginative play which 
really helps with social skills as well. Mm. Is that what um, is that what open ended toys means? It's not one fixed thing. It, it's a kind mm. of interchangeable product that they can play with and build on. Yeah, I think so. It's something that doesn't have a. I'm just trying to think. I'm looking around at the toys we've got here. So something like we've got a till over there. That is quite a. Although although they can all be used creatively as well. We can use that as a phone, but. Some toys tend to have a button that you press and then something happens or the till which you put money in and you press the numbers. The open-ended ones are more about using their imagination or setting up in a way that kind of encourages them to do that. I, I, I haven't got, I won't say I've got all of those. We've definitely got some, I don't know what the opposite of open-ended toys is, but we've definitely got some fixed toys. Um, and they are really enjoyed and played with as well. Like the till, we play shops and that's, a really easy game because you can just get household items and you go around and buy them and you pay for them and then you repeat it about 50 times because it's what children love to do but it really helps um, I really re- I remember I, I used to love till like racking up putting putting, <laughs> yeah. putting food and, and swiping the ingredients and racking up a, a bill and getting someone to pay for it um I used to love that it's funny how certain things I think I have a terrible memory of my childhood but there are just some <laughs> some things that really have really really stuck in there is yeah it's food children love buying food don't they and like mopping the floor and doing things that we get to adulthood and think oh, I don't want to do that but they love it like, I'll clean that floor <laughs> great or if only it lasted yeah yeah um, I wanted to thank you for that. I wanted to um, move on a little bit now in terms of the more, I guess, emotional side of children, um, particularly those who are experiencing most of their life in lockdown at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, Attachment theory is something that keeps coming up in terms of a lot of uh, our community, as I said um, before we started recording, um, have our, our new parents and they either had their child just before the beginning of lockdown or at the start of it. Um, you know, it's coming up to the end of some maternity leaves, for example, mm. and I guess um, whilst they're not necessarily going into the workplace, there is still this sort of um I guess uh what's the word I'm looking for detachment I guess it needs to happen in terms of giving that mother or parent or carer who was on that leave time to get back into the workplace Mm. and I know that some mothers I've spoken to are starting to sort of struggle with that how can parents um particularly mums I think um deal with that emotional level of transitioning back into the workplace and also do you think attachment attachment theory is or attachment behaviors are now more so because everyone is stuck at home that actually when when things do start to open up again we will see slight slightly heightened tensions than perhaps were there Mm. before given that it's we're all stuck in one place around the same people for, for a long period of time Definitely. I think um, for parents, understanding attachment theory really helps because I know that it sometimes gets um, mixed up with attachment parenting. Um, So attachment theory, very simply, it's um, John Bowlby in 1952 came up with a theory based on all of his research um, that 
said the quality of their very first interactions that a young person has, um, I think at the time he did say mother because it was a mother at the time. If, they, if anyone reads about it now, we'll usually say caregiver. Um, but the quality of those very first interactions set the foundations for all of our later relationships. Um, so the very early interactions as kind of very early young infants, um, they will then predict is probably not the right word, um, impact on our future relationships that we all have as we like friends, romantic relationships, other relationships with people in our lives. Um, the probably the most important things for parents to know is that generally most children will form a secure attachment um, because they have a positive experience with that their mother or their father or whoever's their primary caregiver. And when I try and really not to go too much in depth into the attachment theory. When it was kind of expanded and people started to explore different attachment styles, they looked at the response that parents gave to the children. So a child who had their needs met usually would form a secure attachment. Um, the term good enough parenting came about in 1953. And that came from Winnicott who felt that 100% attentiveness was not possible or feasible or even healthy for parents because parents have needs and parents need to get a drink, go to the toilet, I don't know, sleep, just they, they cannot respond 100% of the time. Um, and I don't have the stat to mind, but I'm sure it's something like 30% he found that parents who had a child with a secure attachment were responding to, if that makes sense, which seems really, really low. But from having a baby, I would say, yes, that's probably true because so many of the times we'd be saying, what's going on? Are you hungry? We wouldn't necessarily meet the need first because we'd have to go through and find out what it is. Um, but I always found that quite reassuring because I think sometimes when you're a parent and you hear attachment theory and insecure attachment, dis disorganized attachment and all of these terms, there's a worry that if you do something wrong or if you don't have a great attunement with your baby one day, that it's going to wreck their lives and it's going to impact them for the rest of their life. But the good enough parenting is just so important to remember that 75% of these babies, perhaps even more, I don't know how the pandemic and more people being at home will impact that stat and whether that will go up because parents have more availability or whether it will go down or whether it will stay the same. But I think that's often really important for people to focus on that they're doing a good enough job and you cannot attend all the time. And it is okay to go and get a drink of water and come back it's not going to scar the baby for life. Um, in terms of going back to work, I think, I, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like being a parent in a pandemic with the stresses of being in hospital, everything being different, not being able to necessarily go out and make friends, um, meet people, losing a lot of family support. It's going to be huge for the parents. Um, in terms of the impact on the babies, I don't, I don't know how that will impact if they go into daycare at age one or age two. It may be that they take longer to settle because they're less used to others. Or it may be that because they've had such a high level of quality time with their parent, they're really ready for that. So it's really difficult to predict. Um, probably what's important to mention is that crying upon separation is sign of a good attachment. Um, it's not, not to say that a child that doesn't cry doesn't have a good attachment, but generally children will cry because 
your their mother or your their father, you're leaving them somewhere and you're going away and it's a tough time for them. They usually then can be comforted by whoever it is and will usually be happy to come back. Um, but if a child takes time to settle, it's not necessarily that they've got poor relationship or that the parents done a bad thing. It's that they love their parents and it's a really unusual time for them and it takes time to settle. I think worrying about daycare is so normal. And even just from being on parenting forums and reading people's different opinions and from having opinions within families, I think there's still the idea that parents who put children into nurseries or send them to childminders or who have to work are doing their child a disservice. And it's not true. There have now been quite a few research studies, which I really was pleased to see because I worried about that myself, even though I knew it wasn't a bad thing. Um, and overall, the effect of non-parental care in a child is negligible. Um, they, I think the only thing that impacted on it was if the child was being cared for in a place that was very substandard. So the facilities were not good. They were not being looked after and they were not having their needs met. Um, but in a good childcare setting and a childminder setting with a family member, there's nothing to show that they're going to have difficulties in later life. Um, it will be interesting to see how the pandemic impacts on that, but I don't imagine that it's going to be hugely different for children. Um, from speaking to various nurseries that I work with and have supported, they will always say some children settle instantly, some children take weeks or even months to settle. So part of it is going to be down to the individual child as well and the family relationship and, and also how the parent manages the separation as well. Um, I found it really difficult when my child went to nursery and it was horrible, but I had to really keep it together and say, have a great day and then run off in the car and cry. Um, if that's difficult, that will then impact the child as well. Um, so it's really hard. It, I do just get how hard it's for parents. I think probably the best thing they can do is just own those feelings, just acknowledge them and know, say, I feel terrible, I feel guilty, I feel sad. Um, perhaps even I feel a bit excited to go back to work, which then leads to more guilt because you're not supposed to feel that you should want to be around your baby all the time. Um, but it's a normal feeling. And I think just acknowledging that, maybe talking about it with a friend, a partner, someone you trust can really just help feel like, okay, that's my feeling, that's okay, it's normal. It doesn't mean that they don't love their child, doesn't mean they're doing something terrible to their child. It means that they're looking after them, themselves, their own well-being. And that is so important, particularly if they've been at home for a year with a child not really meeting their own needs as well. So yeah, that yeah, sorry, that did answer the question. Thank you so much. I, I mean, uh, one quick one on that. Um, and this is probably... Um, you know, each mother is completely different, but I'm asking because of the way that you said you handled it in terms of leaving your daughter mm -hmm. at, um, at childcare and sort of pretend, you know, on the face of it, absolutely, you, you're not showing them how sad you are, but then you'll go, you'll go and cry in the car. Totally get that, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, is that a recommended way of 
dealing with that separation with with children is that a good way to to sort of to sort of start I mean you know I spent the last episode on the podcast I, I spoke to a parent who whose child actually was diagnosed with leukemia at a really really young mm. age and she said that you know she always had a brave face on and obviously it was she was dying on the inside but I totally get that putting a brave face um for your children is that would you recommend that if, if a parent is sort of struggling is is that a, a good way to to sort of start mm. I think it depends on the degree of the emotion. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of emotion coaching. So helping children um, recognize, identify, label their emotions, cope with the difficult ones. So we don't try and get rid of them. So at the time when we first, I first started taking my daughter to nursery, I would have, my emotions would have overwhelmed her. So if I dropped her off and just stood in the corridor crying, I think that would have really terrified her because she wouldn't have really know what was going on um and she may have then thought why why are you crying is this place really awful is it terrible um after after a few weeks or probably maybe after a week or two I was calm and I when she said I don't want to go or in her own way she wasn't saying it in such such words at the time I could say I'm sad as well I will miss you I'm going to go to work though because I have to um I think I said because we need money to buy some food or whatever she liked at the time maybe tomatoes um and I felt for me, that was the best way of dealing with it because I wasn't saying, yay, it's great and it's all exciting. I was acknowledging that it was sad that we were separating, um, but it had to happen. And I'd usually say something like, you're going to have a lovely time with and name their key worker as well. So I think it just depends on the kind of degree of the emotion. If if I'd been able to do that on the first day, I would have done, but I thought crying in front of her is probably not going to be the best thing. Um, and also in front of all the nursery staff as well. It's not a great first impression. I'm sure um, they've seen. I'm sure they've seen, they probably they've seen it. Um, yeah. And I'm actually <clears throat> really glad that you brought up emotion coaching because my follow up question was about talk. Uh, it was around language and explaining mm-hmm. emotion to children. And you know, I was going to say if you're not crying in the car, you know, uh, and you and you tear up and you well up and ba- you know the little one says why are you crying but to actually explain you know that this is the emotion that I'm feeling and this is why mm. but um talk to talk, I, I'm really fascinated with emotion coaching as you've said that's the first time I've sort of heard that phrase before but I feel as though at 34 I'm just learning that there is an array of emotions that adults can anyone can experience and that I'm only starting to learn the nuances behind the language behind those different emotions you know disappointment is different to sadness to you know anxiety you know all of they're they're it's really really nuanced what what can you tell us about emotion coaching gosh I'm going to try not to just talk and talk and talk because I do love emotion coaching it's one of my absolute favorite theories I only learned about it I think three years ago and everything they said makes so much sense um we were able to just reflect on how it was in my work and we all met my colleagues how we were all brought up and how particularly in, in Britain as well there's a culture of um not talking about sadness not talking about your angry feelings kind of put them away for another well put them away forever really um, you can talk about being happy. We can talk sometimes about being stressed, but not not much. We can't be overly stressed. Um, and how that impacts on children, because children and adults as well, we experience these emotions. 
Um, but as you said, we don't always know the names for them or the different words for them. And it doesn't make them go away. It just means that we can't make sense of them. Um, which I think is possibly why adults who don't have good emotional literacy end up having arguments, having disagreements, perhaps having physical fights because they cannot make sense of these emotions. And it's the same for children and toddlers. They, just as they are when they're, ba when they're babies, we seem to be quite good at saying, oh, you're sad, you're angry, you're cross, you're tired and naming their emotions. As they get slightly older, there's almost kind of an impulse to protect them. Um, which makes complete sense. As parents, you don't want your child to be sad. You don't want them to be hurt or angry or feel anything that causes them any sort of discomfort. Um, so we might say things like, oh, don't be sad, let's go and get an ice cream, which is dismissing their emotion. It's telling them it's not, it's not important. You can just get over it, let's send it away. Um, it doesn't mean that they're not going to feel sad it means that next time they're sad, they may remember what happened last time and think I need to do something to get over it. I need to get an ice cream. I need to solve this problem. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest problems. Emotions are not something we can just solve. Um, if a child's sad, what, and, and it is hard. And I would say, I'm not doing this perfectly. I'm trying to do it with my child, my daughter, but there are times when I say, don't be angry, don't be sad. And I know that's not right, but we're all human and we all do just say things. What really good, just trying to think how to describe this. With emotion coaching, there's lots of scripts that you can use, which sound really prescriptive, but they're not. It's that you word things in certain ways, you label the emotions, you help them understand it, and then you almost support them through it. So they learn that they can survive being sad. They can survive being angry. Um, because generally toddlers and babies, they're not angry for long. Um, they're not going to get angry about I don't think what toddlers get angry about. It's really strange things, isn't it? There's all those pictures about my toddler was angry because, I don't know, their skip broke in half and, or I don't know, whatever it was. Um, but they will, that will cause them frustration. We can label that and say, you look a little bit angry, cross, sad, frustrated. I would feel that too if my skip broke in half. Um, what can we do to make it better? Some will love a hug. Some, I guess you could fix the thing. If it's, if it's something that is practical. Um, sometimes just being told it's okay to feel that way really helps them because they are validated. They know that it's okay to scream and cry and that you're still going to be there to hold them together. Um, and the idea behind emotion coaching, if it's done kind of by parents within schools is that children are more emotionally literate. So they have the words to describe how they're feeling they understand that they will get sad and they will get angry throughout their life and that nobody doesn't feel those emotions. It's just that some people can't understand them or process or talk about them. And they learn more ways of coping because if a five-year-old says, a five, six-year-old in school goes to a teacher and says, I'm sad, the teacher will be able to say, okay, let's think about how we can manage that. Whereas if they don't have a word for it and they just lie on the floor crying, the teacher then has to think what on earth has gone on? Why are you sad? What's happened? And it takes a lot longer to develop that. Um, yeah, and I'd imagine that a lot of children who who either get very, very angry or stay, stay you know, get very sad, um, as you say, it's it maybe is though that they don't have the language to express themselves. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're not of the age to be able to do that yet. 
that's just yeah. one thing but maybe you if, if they are it's as you, it's as you say they've not been sort of taught or coached into um mm. how to sort of manage those or, or at least vocalize them i feel like emotion coaching is a huge thing and one that it maybe is. we should maybe <laughs> one that we should <laughs> have another episode for um but that yeah i love that whole piece so maybe we can come back yeah. to that at a, at a, at a later a later time or another episode yeah i was just going to say that i recently did some training and for myself i learned that within early years education particularly there's a tendency to just simplify emotions and to say angry i know i think it's sad and happy and then maybe adding on cross and maybe adding on scared and as you said earlier there's just so many different um words on the same scale and they mean different things to different people um and that threw me when I saw it because I thought yes with background in teaching yes that's what we do we just say sad for everything and it's not sad sometimes it's lonely disappointed frustrated and we should really be using those words we we do it for if we're talking about painting colors we wouldn't say to a child that's all shades of blue we would name all the colors they do pick it up and we need to start doing the same with emotions really yeah, oh, I love that analogy of the words for emotion to color, hues of color. Mm. Oh, that's, yeah, really, really beautiful. Um, I want to come back to something that you mentioned right at, right at the start. Um, you said that there are benefits, um, positives and negatives to this mm. pandemic on children and parents. Could you take us through some of those? Maybe we start with the, with the negs. I think... For me, is the negatives have generally been um, more prominent in adults because adults have lost, most adults have lost their support network, their friendships, their socialising, they can't go, I don't know, something as simple as going to the cinema once a month cannot happen. Um, and I think when adults haven't got that level of self-care, they can, that kind of their emotional cup becomes full very quickly. And that can make it really hard for them then to manage the kind of, I suppose, everyday tantrums of a one-year-old that can be really draining anyway, because there's nowhere necessarily for them to get their kind of self-care. I think that can be a negative if there's not enough time to manage your own self-care or look after yourself. Um, thinking with under twos as well, when they're not sleeping and you can't go out, <laughs> You can't just take them and drop them off with their granny or their auntie and say, just, I need half an hour of silence. That can be really difficult because you just end up going round and round in circles and not feeling like you're looking after yourself, perhaps being a bit more snappy and a bit more irritable, completely understandable. Um, I think that's been one of the most difficult things. Um, for, I, for I've didn't have my baby in the pandemic, but for new parents, I imagine the lack of professional support has been huge because where, where I live, we, the services are not great at the best of times, but we did have home visits from midwives. They had, did have the early years services that you could go to. You could even just go somewhere to a weight clinic. Um, not even necessarily if you're worried about a child's weight, just to get out and do something and structure the day. And I think that must be incredibly difficult because newborns particularly they don't have a routine and then as an as I think as humans generally we like routine we like structure we like to know what's happening if you're up and down all night and your child's sleeping all over the place sometimes having just that visit or having somewhere to go can really help structure that so I think 
um, I'm still talking about adults actually, I think a lot of it's been impacting on adults, um, which then impacts on the child because the adult is much more upset or frustrated. In terms of, um, I'm just trying to think of parents that I've worked with over the past year and generally the negatives have usually been in older children who are missing the socialising. Um, so missing seeing their grandparents or their cousins or their friends from school. Um, when, when I've spoken with parents about young children, a lot of them tend to be quite positive about the how much they've developed with the one-to-one -one support that they wouldn't necessarily have had. Um, it's not always the case because I know parents have had to work from home, do childcare. Some have had to go into work and I imagine for parents who work in kind of customer facing critical roles right now, they are kind of stressed to their limit in both home and work. But for parents who've been able to have that time at home and just enjoy their child without thinking, I've got to go here and I've got to go there and I've got someone coming round. They, they've often said things like their speech has really come on because they're talking to them all day um, or their play skills have really developed. I think um, I've spoken to a few parents about sign language where their child was learning sign language. And they said, because they're able to just do it repeatedly every day and there's no changes, no break in the routine. They've just picked up quite a few more signs. I think what's really difficult when talking about the positives is that they always come with the difficulties as well. So for me, one of the positives was just the time we got to play um, and not having to feel the guilt of dropping my child off at nursery and going to work. So just the time that, that this was better in the summer when we could go outside but just the time that we got to go in the garden and play and not think about anything else, that, that was really lovely. The downside of that, of course, is that then you don't get a break from playing and playing can be quite exhausting, I think, um, for children and for adults. The, yeah, I, I, I totally understand and see where, where you, and as you say, the, the positives always <laughs> bolted on with, with a slight mm. uh, negative. But I think out of the negatives that you said in terms of, I guess, particularly when it came to the, the parent, um, in terms of sort of lack of self-care and lack of, um, I guess, the support from maybe mm. sort of health visitors and stuff, that's exactly, um, exactly the reason why for us anyway passion mama exists is to help the mothers get the support that they need in terms of one their own well-being but two we've actually just funnily enough just launched this new service which pairs new parents with maternity nurses virtually mm -hmm. so it's even though it's not on hand it sorry it's not in person it's called on hand it's not in person so it is slightly different yeah. and it doesn't get them out of the house but it is that constant 24 7 reassurance that somebody who is qualified can answer questions talk about routine talk about sleep habits all of those different things so That's yeah I'm, I'm yeah I'm hoping that as a business we can help to combat some of those mm. um negative um or slightly more challenging aspects that that women are facing parents are facing during this pandemic so that so, yeah. sounds amazing. And I don't think being online hinders that in any way. One of the, um, apart from obviously family support through telephone calls and Zoom calls and things, I've um, got just an online support network of um, other mums who we were all into, well not into, we were all using the same brand of nappies. And so then we're asked to be admin in a group and that has been an amazing group because you can just say, oh, it's just really hard today and everyone understands. And there's normally someone who can reply quite quickly. 
And I think that probably for me has been similar to seeing kind of mum friends in real life because it's sometimes it's not even about real life, it's about having someone that understands. And as you said, are giving advice with knowledge because Google and Facebook are just so conflicting. You can ask a question and get 50,000 different answers. And you also don't know who people who are who they say there are. People might say, I'm a GP and this is my advice. And that's a bit weird. And yeah, that sounds like such a wonderful service yeah, for well. all times, really. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, we're just mm. focused on sort of newborn care now, but eventually I want it to, you know, be from everyone to from sort of young as young as wow. quest, questions on periods up to menopause so we'll see we'll see we're just at the start um Teresa thank you so much this has been really really it's been so interesting talking to you I think we've really you've really helped to frame and answer some of the questions that I know the community have been asking so I really really appreciate that and and not in in um um, convoluted ways in ways that you know I, I, even I can understand so I do appreciate mm. that thank you um, and perhaps maybe in um, uh, later on in the year we can do something on emotion coaching as well I'd really like that fantastic I love emotion coaching <laughs> great no it's been fun good I'm so glad thank you so much thank you